Thank you, Jim. Thank you much. Is the, uh, the mic on? It's on. Thank you much. It's good to see everybody. Good to see everyone. We have uh, Thanksgiving coming up this week, holiday week, travel week for some, and others are inviting a lot of folks in town, so it's going to be a big week. And I hope that uh, it's a restful week for you. We have been uh, speaking these last weeks on the rest that Jesus gives to us. And today I'm going to continue that. Um, and it reminded me of the story that we have had at home. Uh, so a few years ago, we were sitting and having a meal at, uh, at our table. And it was a breakfast meal. And one of our daughters, I'm not going to say who, tends to be a little restless at times. And uh, after a while, sometimes she can get a, a firm but, but gentle uh, you know, rebuke or a command from one of us, mom or, or me. And, uh, and this one was, stay in your seat. You, know, you, you may have been familiar with that, that wording at times, just because after a while, you just want your child to, to be still. And I had my smoothie, which I have in the morning, and love having smoothies. And, uh, and my smoothie uh, somehow you know, got dropped out of my hand onto uh, Elizabeth's desk, which she has next to the kitchen table, which all of her amazing things are, are on top of. And so we had a, a catastrophic mess. And, and Charlotte, my eldest daughter, uh, she immediately gets up out of the kindness of her heart and she begins to clean the mess. She's, she's got a big servant's heart. She loves to do those things. And, and she turns to the, the daughter that had been previously told to sit still and said, will you please help me? And this restless daughter looks over at Charlotte and says, mom told me to sit still. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's, there's a difference between love and obligation. <laughs> and so we, we kind of know this distinction. Uh, love uh, enters into the spirit. Love uh, does what's best in the moment. Uh, obligation can be quite rigid at times. Uh, obligation can, can miss the forest for the trees. Obligation can uh, live according to self-righteousness and law. And, and we see that dynamic at play oftentimes in the Gospels, where Jesus is transforming what everyone thought love and law and religion looked like to help enter into true love. Love that comes from freedom. And the, the rest I want to talk to you today about is the rest that comes from submission. Submission to God, submission to one another, submission to leadership. And I, I can't really talk about that without first talking about authority and the authority that we are submitting to. And when Jesus came, he came to turn upside down the authorities that were in the world and the way that we view authority in the world. Remember, his kingdom is not of this world. And so any definition of any term that's out there, he is coming to renew. And so I want us to speak a bit to that today. And so I'm going to read first from the Gospel of Matthew and then the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to read the same story from two different accounts. Two different accounts. But it's going to require a little bit of a backdrop. So first of all, there's four Gospels, as you may know, Matthew, Mark, 
Luke and John. Each gospel was written you know, by a specific person, and that specific person had a unique personality, a unique perspective, and, and a unique call as they were writing down what it was that Jesus did in his life, what, what the gospel was. And so you have Matthew, and Matthew writes similar to the way that the Pentateuch was written out. He has five sections to his gospel, like there are five books of the Pentateuch. The reason why Matthew was doing this is because Matthew's personality, his perspective, and his call was emphasizing the kingdom of God and the authority now that is on Jesus, like it was on Moses, but now a better one than Moses is here. And so he breaks it down like that. Mark's unique perspective is that the kingdom of God is now. It's fast. It's upon us. The action is here. It's powerful. It's going to be fun. It's all around us. But you can grab a hold of it. It's the kingdom of God. It's, it's gospels, according to, to Mark. For Luke, his unique perspective was uh, embodying the suffering servant that Isaiah, the prophet, had written about. So in the, the mind map and the historical perspective of the people of Israel, Isaiah was his, was his prophet who spoke words that were like giant's words across the community and across time and history. And when he speaks, he speaks, Isaiah spoke about the suffering servant, the Messiah that was to come. And he was a little bit you know, curious who this would become and who this would be and what they were going to be like. And Luke is speaking to Jesus as that suffering servant. So his special emphasis is on suffering, is on service, is on humility, is on the least and the lost. And so his unique perspective is a little bit different than others in that regard. That's why you have Luke speaking so much about the disenfranchised, specifically about women in that culture. And his gospel, therefore, is representing a bit of that service. John's was an embodiment of what the father looks like embodied in a person and a son who knows his father well. And so in the gospel of John, you have such wonderful language of intimacy with God and of a son fully submitting to his father. You have this beautiful expression of openness that Jesus shows us about what it's like to live in communion with God. That's John's unique perspective. Based on his own personality, he was a mystic. He was uh, potentially like an introvert. He, uh, he just loved cultivating that intimacy with God. And so I'm going to speak from the Gospel of Matthew today and the Gospel of Luke. Because of those two emphases, there are going to be a little bit of differences in the Gospel presentations. And that happens throughout the Gospels. We know that, for instance, the story of Jesus is true because of the differences of his followers in the telling of the story of Jesus. You know, there's four different accounts of the cross and resurrection because there's four different unique eyewitness perspectives. They didn't come alongside and, and, and gather up their own information and, and collectively tell a story to make sure they got it right. You know, if you're a, in the, the criminal justice world, one of the ways that you know that a story is true is that there's differences in the story. But if all the criminals have the exact same story, then you begin to question the veracity of it because you can see that they got together to conspire for something. But for the Gospels, there's differences and that actually shows the trustworthiness of it and honesty of it. And also, it's honest to know that we have different perspectives and, and you can even say biases that we bring to the, to the Scriptures and God allows that because He's made us in His image. And so He's okay with us embodying different aspects of the full Gospel as we present it. And so Matthew's going to have an emphasis, and he's talking about the authority that, that, that rests upon Jesus like it was on Moses. 
And so he's establishing, therefore, this new way of understanding authority itself. And so let's look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, and we're going to go down to the very end of verse 13. Jesus is entering into a town called Capernaum. It was there near the Sea of Galilee. And there was a centurion there who came forward to him, appealing to Jesus. A centurion was a Roman high officer. They had a, quite a substantial garrison that they were in charge of and responsible for. A centurion represented the might and the iron fists of Rome against the oppressive people of Israel. The centurion was there representing the very evil nature of the world against the people of God. They would enact harsh taxes at times. They would require the Jews to walk a whole mile with them and carry their belongings if they so chose to on a whim. A centurion was the example, the most close example to this, uh, this, this people, this, this oppressive nation that was against the people of God. And so if you can imagine that there is any kind of oppression going on and you are an oppressed people, you tend not to think highly of those people that are around you. And you tend to despise them. And then if you are that oppressor, you tend to have a high and mighty view above those people. You tend to think of yourself as better than, you tend to think of yourself as I have these people under my thumb. You may not even consider them to be people at all. And so think about the, the Nazi occupation of Germany and uh, the, the European countries during that time period. And that kind of perspective is what was known here. So think of like a, an SS officer as a centurion. The centurion, however, comes to Jesus. Let's look at it. In verse 6, and he says, and this is an amazing statement, he says, Lord, to Jesus, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, excuse me, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. That's an astonishing statement. You have this, this centurion who, like I said earlier, was this, this high and mighty figure. But he's coming low into a place of humility and vulnerability before Jesus. He had heard of Jesus. He says, For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those around him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Faith, faith, such faith. First of all, there's Jesus, the, 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 the Lord of all. He's coming to bring salvation. Love is in his heart and in his hands. And he's marveling at this man's faith. At this centurion's faith. I want to uh, encourage you all a little bit uh, to be one like this centurion who God marvels at your faith. It's possible for God to look you in the eyes and marvel at your faith. And we're going to talk today a bit how you can step into that. And we're going to continue on with this one a bit. And so when Jesus heard this, he marveled. He says, truly, I've never seen someone in Israel with this faith. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west, recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the whole community of God in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, the ones that are currently there in Israel, 
will be thrown into the outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So Jesus was, was marveling at the faith of the centurion. And I think it, it would seem obvious that the faith that the centurion has is in Jesus' ability to simply speak a word, and that servant is healed. Right? That, that, that a centurion can look into Jesus and say, I see in you the authority and power in God, and I believe that if you just speak it, because you're under authority, my servant will be healed. And I think that's, that's right. That's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful way of looking at this passage. I want to challenge us a bit in this as well, though, to, to expand this a little bit more. Because I think there's more going on in this passage than maybe we can look at at first glance. And I want to look at the letter of Luke, Luke's gospel, to help us to see that a bit. So let's look on over into Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. And so same exact passage here, but now spoken from Luke's perspective. Luke is the doctor. He's looking at how... The suffering servant walked on this earth. He's looking at humility. He's looking at the very heart of God and how it acts. So after Jesus had finished all of his sayings and the hearing of people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by the centurion. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews. Now, remember in Matthew's account, it said that the centurion came to Jesus. Here, Luke is saying that the centurion did not go to Jesus. But the centurion sent elders to go speak to Jesus. So whenever you notice a difference in two passages like this, same story, but there's a difference in how it's told, it's worth paying attention to that and asking the question, what is going on here? Who won? Now the centurion had a servant who was sick and to the point of death and who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent the elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal the servant. And when they, the elders, came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He, the centurion, he is worthy to have you do this for him. Sorry, let me, uh... yeah, that's it. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. So he began to go now with the elders. And when he was not far off from the house, the centurion sent his friends to him. So in the previous passage, the centurion was walking along with Jesus seemingly, but that's actually not what was going on. Luke says that the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I will not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, at the centurion. Turning to the crowd that followed him, he then said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Wow. 
So we see, in this case, Jesus healing the servant after the centurion sends the elders and his friends. And the centurion tells Jesus, I also am a man in authority. For if I sent my servants, if I send my soldiers, they will do whatever I ask them to do. But in this passage, did he send his servants? Did he send his soldiers to Jesus? He has all authority. So let's picture this a little bit more. There's a servant that the centurion has that he loves dearly. He values him tremendously. And if you want to get something done, if you want to guarantee something to get done, in our world, we would make sure it happens. We would send the slave. We would send the soldier. Right? We want to make sure it gets done. So we would send the one that is under obligation. Right? We, we would send the one that we're, we're going to pay that person to do it. We're going to make that person do it under the authority of Rome and under the power because we value this so much. We want to make sure it gets done. I'm going to send my servants. I'm going to send my soldiers so that they make sure that they get Jesus here. But who does he send? He sends the elders of the people whom he, his government, was oppressing. He sent the elders of those whose religion was against his oppression. He sent the elders of the nation that he had gotten to know and fell in love with. Humbled himself too. Built a synagogue for and said, it is to you that I want you to go to Jesus and ask him to do this. Can you imagine this leader, this SS officer, for instance, going to a, a Jewish leader in his community who he was oppressing and saying to him, I, I have something that I value so much. I'm not going to make you do anything. I'm going to put this in your hands. I'm going to trust you with something that I care about so much. These elders were on no obligation to the centurion. They went out of love. Right? It says in this passage that, that they, were, they were pleading with Jesus. A servant, a slave, a soldier. They're not going to plead with Jesus. They're, gonna, they're not going to tell him to come. The hearts of these elders have been so transformed by the love of the centurion that they were pleading with Jesus to come. And then as, as Jesus continues on in his way, it's now his friends that come to Jesus. When you're with friends, what, what can you share with them that you maybe can't share with soldiers and slaves? Uh, you know, if you have employees, if you have people that are under you, you, you can't share them, share with them your, your heart always in, in the world. You, you can't always be the one that's vulnerable and authentic because sometimes you're having to lead and, and, it's, and it's hard. But there's a very different way of leading that the centurion is actually picking up on. It's marvelous. It's astonishing, this centurion's faith. Because he goes to his, his friends and he says, hey, listen, this is a centurion. I'm not worthy of having that Jewish man in my house. I, I am I'm the epitome, I am the top of the world from Rome. I, I am a Roman soldier endowed with all authority to do whatever I want to in this land, according to those who I'm under authority to. I can exact, I can, I can kill people. That was part of the rights of the centurion. But I'm not going to let that happen. 
I'm going to submit myself to you, my friends, and let you know that I feel unworthy to have this man who I'm ruling over. I don't feel worthy around him. That's an astonishing level of vulnerability and honesty. Can, can you think of that? I mean, it would be, you know, maybe, maybe President Biden getting up there and, and telling people, I don't feel worthy of having any honors. In the, I don't think he'd say this. <laughs> any honors that I put out there, I, I need your help. I, I have I've made mistakes or whatever it might be. Please help me out. This is a very unusual request from the centurion. And yet, his friends who are so in love with this man, they go to him and they say to Jesus, he says, just say the word. We've already established that, he, that the centurion believed that Jesus had authority, like, like a Moses, to do what healing would be done. But that's not the thing that I believe that Jesus was marveling at. Because he knew that that centurion, that power, and the centurion was telling Jesus, I know what power is in the world. I could tell a servant to go. I could tell a slave to go and do this. And they would do it. I know authority. And I'm not going to use it the way the world does. He sends friends and he sends elders of this community that he was overseeing to show this leader his vulnerability publicly. He doesn't feel worthy for you to come into his house. I want my friends to go tell this Jewish leader amongst all of his followers who are going to hear this that he doesn't feel worthy. That's astonishing to me. That level of vulnerability. And this is what I believe that Jesus is marveling at. And I believe this is the faith. I believe that the centurion was picking up that this is the exact heart of God. That God, when he requests, when, when he commands, he doesn't do it by obligation. He gives you choice in that. The commands of God in love always give freedom. We talked about it last week. He sets up a garden, and in the garden he plants a tree called the knowledge of good and bad, good and evil, and he says, don't eat of it. I'm going to leave it there so that you have a choice at all times. Are you going to love me and grow in wisdom and grow in love? It's your choice. You can grab a hold of that wisdom if you want to and develop it on your own apart from me. I give you the freedom to do so. You can stay with me or you can go. What do you want to do? This is our God. He gives us the option. True authority is not obligatory. True authority gives option and freedom in love. That's the only ground that cultivates love, is freedom. Freedom that doesn't come by command, by manipulation. It doesn't come by coercion. It doesn't come by power. It doesn't come by violence. Jesus would go on later to say, if my followers were of this world, he's before Pilate now, they'd be fighting for my release, fighting for my kingdom. But I'm not of this world. So they're not going to make you do anything. This is our Father. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And we think that because he said, obey, that I have to therefore do what he's saying. I am obligated to obey because that's what love looks like. And so we, we get the cart before the horse. We, we think that it's by law, it's by command, it is by force. If we don't do this, it's by fear. We're going to get punished. We're going to be left behind. We're going to be abandoned. God's going to be angry with us. God's going to slam us. Whatever that might be in our minds. 
That's what we think authority is. That's what obedience looks like. And here, Jesus is looking at this centurion, this, this master of the forces of Rome, the might of the army there. He's saying, I, I could have sent servants and slaves. But I, I believe that your God is different than the God of this world. I believe that you give choice. I believe that your authority comes from an option. I believe that your God will answer your prayer, not because he has to, but because he wants to. Not because he's obligated to, but because out of love and freedom, he chooses to heal. He gives freedom out of his love. And this is astonishing to me. This is a complete paradigm shift of what we think love is. Paul picks it up in the book of Philemon. I'm going to continue on for just a bit. Another example of this, and this is one of the most famous letters of all time. This letter helped end slavery, colonial slavery, as we've known it, in the, in the world. And it came through the church. It came through Jesus Christ. He, he, has, he has helped eradicate the notion that slavery is a good idea through this letter. And so in verse 4 of Philemon, Paul is thanking God for everyone. He's talking about how much he has thought of them, how much he loves them. And then he talks about his, his love for Philemon. And then in verse 8, he says, In this love and in this refreshment, and a little bit of background, Paul had a servant of Philemon's named Onesimus. Onesimus had run away as a slave. And Paul found him, shared with him the gospel, and Onesimus got saved. And, and now he was filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with love, and doing wonderful things for Paul. And Paul's like, Onesimus, it's time for you to go back to the one that you ran away from. And I know for a lot of us, that's, an, you know, that, that's a very uncomfortable reality that, that someone of the gospel would send someone back into slavery. And so let's dive, dive in a little bit more to this. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required in verse 8. So I could command you to do this. The NRSV says, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty. Or another version says, to do what you ought to do. So I could, I could make you do this by command. I could make you give back Onesimus. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Another translation said, I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. Or yet, for love's sake, I'd rather reason with you. For I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. So Onesimus is a slave who came into Christ through Paul, so Paul considers him a father, and Paul considers himself a father too, Onesimus. Whose father I became in my imprisonment. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your freedom, by your own accord. I didn't want you to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help me because you were willing and not because you were forced, another translation said. And so let me put this together a little bit in the, the passages. Paul is sending back his slave Onesimus, or his, his son Onesimus, who's like a son to him, 
back into slavery, Philemon now, who's also a Christian, has the option of what he's going to do with this man's life. And so if you have a, a son or a daughter, and you're going to send them into potential slavery, you know, and all that that might mean in that world at that time, which is a little bit different than, when, than the colonial times, but it was nonetheless slavery. And you have the option of compelling that person to free them. Would you be tempted to do that? Would you be tempted to force that person, let my son go? Would you be tempted to coerce that person, let my son go? I, my heart is in this one. Paul says that I have the right as an apostle, as representing what is right before God, to tell you to do this and to make you do it. I have that right. But, it says in the passage, so that it would not be under obligation, but instead out of love, I appeal to you to do this. Oh. This is the love of our Father. This is the love of true authority and true leadership. And he's given it to you and I. He, he gave it to the centurion. And the centurion lived by faith. Paul, living by faith, acknowledged that the thing that's most precious to him, he was letting it go into another's arms. And, and he refused to control it. The centurion refused to control the outcome of his requests. And so he didn't send slaves and soldiers. He sent his friends to share his vulnerability and his unworthiness to God for the sake of freedom and love. The centurion didn't want his request by coercion because that's not the kingdom that he saw in Jesus. Paul did not want Onesimus' freedom through coercion being forced being demanded by violence or any other means because he knew that only love could truly set Onesimus and Philemon free. If you and I are forced to do things, then it's not love. True love is not obligatory. True leadership, therefore, does not obligate. True leadership does not force. True leadership does not manipulate. True leadership gives choice. Freely. And Paul let him know exactly what his heart and what was at stake. He became vulnerable. My heart is in your hands, Philemon. Because my son is my heart. I, I give him to you. You choose love. You choose what is best. This is what is best, but, it, but it's your choice. Now, Philemon, you know, he, he's upset with this guy because he ran away. He's upset because he represents money. He represents income. He represents authority and influence and power. All these things that slaves in those times would have represented. And to let that go, to let those things go for the sake of love, is still also a temptation now for Philemon. But do you see what's happened now? Paul shares his vulnerability and says, hey, my love is in your hands. And Philemon receives this and sees the example that's out there and, and is given the option. When we are vulnerable and give people choice, it makes us vulnerable and it empowers the other person to choose. It's one of the amazing things about freedom is that if we give that person that option, it actually empowers them to be able to choose love. But if you obligate someone to do what you have, what you're asking them to do, if you're making them do it, 
then they actually can't be empowered to choose love because it's been taken from them. It's one of the things I, I completely disagree with socialism and communism for, in many ways, because it doesn't offer you freedom. I'm not getting into politics. But it's a form of government that's lesser and lower than the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gives you the choice. Love me. There's a tree right here. What do you want? I want to give you wisdom. I want to give you the world. I can give you all these things if you just ask. And I'm not going to be obligated to give to you. I want to give to you out of my freedom, says the Lord. He's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. And yet he chooses every single day to breathe his spirit into yours. To give you mercy every single morning. To put food on your table. To give you work. To become useful and purposeful. He gives you these things not because he's obligated to you. But out of love. Everything that you all have is from love of the Father. Nothing is coerced from him. I hope you experience that love. He enjoys giving to you. He enjoys making himself vulnerable to you because every time that you see these things and, and, and forget to give him thanks or, or miss what he's doing in your midst, there's a part of his heart, like any good father, that was like, oh, I wish that you could have seen that. Oh, I had this thing planned for you, but, but you, know, you said no to it. And, and there's a grief that's there. Because he's not obligated. He wants these things to be yours. And so when that happens, you know, he's vulnerable to your choice. This is the power that God's given you in his heart. He's not a robot. These things matter to him. And so Jesus marvels at the faith of the centurion to see past the systems that the centurion had been living by all along. It's an astonishing astonishing act in the centurion. And, and we can certainly say that, yeah, the centurion believes that Jesus can heal, and that power is in him. That's clearly part of this passage. But that's not the whole story. So Philemon, in my mind, ends it with Paul. I mean, what an astonishing thing. We're talking about people. We're talking about the lives of people. And so we, we do this now in the church world, or in your, your family life, in marriage. When we are working out our salvation together. If you're obligating another person to do what you want them to do, then, then that's a lesser form of love. If you're setting up a family system that, that obligates and, and that there's, there's punishment, and there's fear involved, that's a lesser kingdom than the kingdom that is being offered to you in Christ. It's much more difficult, this kingdom of, of Jesus. Because it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt when you get rejected. It's going to hurt when someone says, no, I don't want that. It's going to hurt like it hurt Jesus when people accused him or slandered him. It's not possible to live like Jesus did unless he had the fullness of God living in him. And because of his freedom, he was, people were jealous of him. How could you possibly live so free, unentangled by coercion? How do you, how do you, how do you live with that, Jesus? And then out of that comes jealousy or slandered. It's not possible. He's, got, he, he's living by Beelzebub. That power that he has, there's no way it's possible from God. There's no way it's possible to live that free. It's, not, it's just not possible to trust that much because it hurts too much to live in this world. Except that Jesus did it. Except that the centurion did it. Except that Paul did it. And Philemon did too. Philemon, the result of this letter is that he said that this was free. 
And another letter that Paul has, Onesimus became one of the champions, one of the, the heroes of the early church. He was in power. His life was in the hands of others. He saw it plainly. And he saw love transform those and say, my authority isn't going to be met in, in holding you in bondage, but in being set free. This is our God. This is the one that we are submitting to. And so when God does ask you to do something challenging or difficult, it's never out of obligation, and it's always to a heart that has already been made vulnerable to you. But Jesus made himself so vulnerable to us, mankind, that we killed him. He, he's already done that. He showed us. He showed us he was willing to go all the way through to the very end, to be, res- to be killed on the cross and then resurrected. So when we look at that, we can, trust, we can trust in a God who will do that for us. And as you lead, too, in your life, whether it's a family, whether it's business, you're asked at times to do things that are sacrificial, that hurt. But people will see it. And people will take note that your freedom is more valuable to you than your status, than your coercion. Because you don't use those same mechanisms of manipulation that the world does, they'll take notice of you. And you'll give them the option. They will see a kingdom that they maybe hadn't seen ever before. It'll astonish them. They will become transformed by love. They will begin to trust you. If you want to encourage trust in your family, if you want to encourage trust in your relationships or in your businesses, don't coerce. Give people the freedom. Give people the option. Help them to see that it hurts at times to lead that way. But in a non-militant way, help them to see also that it's a freedom that you want them to have. That's more important to you than the outcome that would come from coercion or from obligation. The, the lower forms of leadership are these other ways of obligation, these kind of things. As, as a church body, that we've been talking about this for months, you're, you're not under the obligation of the law any longer. You see what Jesus was setting us free from? When you have the law, you have to do it. You are not free. If you don't do it, then you're separate from God, and you can't live fullness of love. And so, he was getting rid of that. And as a church, if we're setting things up on the law, then we're just reinventing a kingdom that already exists in the world that we're all tired of being a machine and a cog in. And so we all in this room, we have freedom together. Freedom to love, to give people options, freedom to hurt one another at times. Freedom to forgive. That's the key that Jesus shows all of us. How do you possibly do that? You, you forgive constantly. You constantly forgive, and then you have to always receive back from the Father. What are you giving up? So for Paul, he was giving up his heart. If Philemon would have, would have taken Onesimus and, and kept him, Paul has to receive his heart from the Father. Paul has to live with such freedom that he can, otherwise it would, it would squashed him, he would have killed him. He would have had to have grabbed a hold back of so we, we, we forgive constantly, and we receive constantly. That's the only way to live like this. We live in the flow of the Holy Spirit. And so I want you as a church this week to practice this week. I want you to practice submission. I want you to practice submitting to relationships that you don't fully agree with at times. 
to, to show that your heart is not dependent upon that person or that situation or anything like that, but you in your own freedom are giving that, that person that, that, that you're submitting to an option as well. Uh, an evidence that, you know, that they themselves are under authority as well. So to practice submission to one another, to situations that aren't always best. I'm not saying be a doormat, we're not going to go down there today. I just want us to, to learn how to practice letting things go. Because the only way that Jesus could have done this, the only way that the centurion could have done this, the only way that Philemon or Paul could have done this, is because they trusted so much in God. They had such rest in who he was that they could be free with whatever their outcome would become. So practice that, certainly. Uh, and then practice the, the rest that comes from that and the enjoyment. And then, and then give it away to others as well. So find areas of your life that maybe you were controlling. And, and friends, I've controlled so many situations before in my life. So you know, we're all working this out. And let it go. And trust that other person. Give them the, the choice, the option. All right, so let me pray, and then we're going to have some communion. Father, I'm, I'm so grateful that you're not like this world. I, I can hardly believe it at times how tender-hearted you are and how much freedom you give to us. Who the Son has set free is truly free indeed. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so, Father, I ask for all of us that you would help overcome our fear in living that free, that you'd overcome the fear of giving away choices and freedom to others. I pray that you would heal all those examples that we've had in the past of controlling parents or authorities that have abused us, that you'd remove the traumas, that we could actually be innocent and pure-hearted again to trust and to submit to you and to love you, not out of obligation, but because we have first been loved by you, who made yourself vulnerable to us. And so I ask, Father, for a revelation of your love for us in these days of what the cross has done in giving us love. I ask that you would give us these things. Give us grace and courage. God, I love you so much. Thank you for these genuinely astonishing and marvelous examples of faith and love. Amen.